Yesterday I was reading an article in Christianity Today written by Peter Nelson that began with these words, and they caught my attention. Pragmatism runs rampant in American Christianity. If faith does not work, it lacks value. We expect prompt and measurable results from knowing Christ. Concrete, visible changes in our lives show that the gospel is relevant and its transforming power is for real. Bad habits broken, strained relationships restored, church attendance figures on the rise, giving that's ahead of last year's. If you can't graft positive results, what's the point? Following Christ makes a difference, and we take special pleasure in the dramatic before and after of practical spiritual progress. More recently, we have seen outcome-based education and the endless stream of mission statements we must fashion to spell out in advance just how God may transform our lives. Thoughtful challenges to these teachings have been made, but we keep leaning on the pragmatism direction. Results. Changed lives. Bad habits broken. Strained relationships restored. Church attendance records or figures on the rise. Giving ahead of last year's. Test scores improving. Even mission organizations looking to quantify, transform lives on the mission field to validate their own existence as a mission organization. After I graduated from seminary, I recall a very, it was sort of an embarrassing moment in my early life of ministry. I was serving as an assistant pastor in an aspiring megachurch. A couple of years into that ministry, we built a new 2,500-seat auditorium. And after we moved in, attendance almost doubled, seemingly overnight. Then one Sunday, in the midst of an attendance boom, with the auditorium packed, the pastor, as was the custom of the church, invited people to stay for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Probably 2,300 people got up and left. Only a couple hundred stayed to observe the Lord's Supper. In my immaturity, I got up immediately, went over to the pastor, the senior pastor, and said, we need to nail those backsliders before they get out the door and get them back in here where they belong. And he just looked at me with eyes of compassion, grateful, I'm sure, for my youthful zeal, but willing to overlook my pompous ignorance. Yes, he could have embarrassed them or twisted their arm or manipulated them and gotten them to stay. But that would fail to address the real need in their lives and in our lives. And that is how to get them to want to stay and obey the Lord's command to do this in remembrance of me. Whether it's obeying our Lord's words to love one another as I have loved you, or to not forsake the assembling together of ourselves in church, 
or to serve one another with all humility, or to do the will of the Father, which is to believe in His Son for eternal life. The need is not to figure out how we can force or manipulate people to get them to obey the Lord and do the things that He says. The issue is how to get them to want to obey and do those things out of a willing heart. You see, no one, no pastor, no Christian leader, nor any other influential Christian can make a person want to obey and do what our Lord says. You know, even God, the Holy Spirit, does not overpower our determination to disobey or ignore the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. It grieves Him when we do, but He doesn't overpower us. So how do people get to a point where they will want to obey and do what our Lord says? Or to ask the question a little differently, how are obedient, loyal subjects of Messiah King produced? Or to take the question into the realm of a metaphor our Lord used while he taught on this earth, what is the secret of a good spiritual harvest? What is the secret of a good spiritual harvest? If you have your Bible or if we care to turn on the note sheet, I'd like for you to get your, your, yourself ready to just take a look at Mark chapter 4 today. In the last week, we began a series of messages dealing primarily with the parables of Matthew 13. And so you're saying, well, why is he over in Mark 4? Well, Mark 4 and Luke 8 are the parallel chapters in those books, in those gospels that complement Matthew 13. Now, last week, we looked at the parable in Matthew 13 called the parable of the soil or the sower probably better to refer to it as the parable of the soils because the soils are the one thing that differed from one to the next and those soils represent the human heart. Now before we read this parable in its context in Mark 4, I would like for us to become familiar with the theological context. And this is sort of where we come to that illustration. Jesus says, let him who has ears to hear, hear which means there's something serious here to listen to. But you have to listen. So I want to just review this again, and it's important that we review it because people weren't here last week, and so it's all new to some of them, as well as it's still sketchy in some of our minds. So I'm going to have to keep going over this ground, and hopefully from week to week it'll get less intense and we won't have to go over so much. Let's take a look at just what this... The Lord Jesus Christ was thinking as he spoke these parables. What, where, where was he in his mind and his thoughts? What's going on? What Jesus was basically trying to explain to his disciples is what he calls the mystery of the kingdom of God. Let me get the, uh, I think I forgot that. Uh, we'll get that thing up on the screen. There it is. The mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, what is this all about? 
He calls it a mystery because it is something that has never been revealed in the Bible up to this point. You can go into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament talks about the kingdom. It says that there's going to be a kingdom coming in which Israel's Messiah, the Lord, is going to send him, and he is going to reign over this kingdom called Messiah's kingdom forever and ever. So when Jesus came to this earth, he presented himself as Israel's true Messiah and king. But something happened. They rejected him. And it became very apparent in Matthew chapter 12, before you get to chapter 13, when the leaders ascribed the work that he was doing in healing a a deaf man to the work of the devil. And Jesus was completely bringing this to the attention of his disciples. The idea is he was going to be officially rejected by the nation. One day he will return. He will return and establish his kingdom, the messianic kingdom, at his second coming. But we have a big question. What happens to the kingdom between the two comings? Is there going to be some kind of a kingdom? What about this, the kingdom in between Messiah's first coming and second coming that's been going on for 1,900 years has there been any kind of kingdom going on? Is there, a, is there a kingdom? And remember what a kingdom is. It involves a king and subjects who are willing to do what the king says. That's what you need for a kingdom. Will there be a kingdom of God on earth during this time? Will there be anyone willing to live in submission to the will of the king, Messiah, during this time? And this is the time we're talking about right here. Now, here's the church age. It begins after Jesus died and rose again. It goes on. It's gone on for about 1,900 plus years. At some point, the church will be raptured to be with the Lord. He will, con- he will descend from heaven. We shall be with him for seven years, the Bible says, at least seven years. And then we shall return with him to this earth, and he shall establish his messianic kingdom. During this time on earth that we're with him in the clouds in heaven, it says that the tribulation will come. And we're not going to get into all that today, but let me just giving you two periods of time. Well, there are believers, people who become believers during this time. There are people who become believers during this time. The question is, will there be people who are living in subjection to the king during this time? And that takes us to the mystery form of the kingdom. That is, there will be a king. He won't be present on the throne of David but he will be in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And those on earth who choose, who want to obey him, are basically the subjects of his kingdom. They are the loyal subjects of his kingdom who are willing to do what he says. And there are people from the church age that fill that that bill, and there are people during the tribulation that will fill that bill. And even before the church age began, there were people. So you have this mystery form of the kingdom that runs from the time of the Messiah's official rejection by the Jewish leadership, the cross, all the way to his kingdom over here. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this intervening period that we're in. And that's why this this whole series is called Understanding the Times in Which We Live. 
We're first of all trying to understand the times as far as the church is concerned, as far as our own lives are concerned. Jesus is not ruling with a rod of iron today. When he comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth, he will rule with a rod of iron. He will demand that people do what he tells them. If they don't, then they will be removed, cut off. But he's not doing that today. Rather, people submit to him because they want to submit to him. They listen to his word and do what he says because they want to. Now, how are they brought into submission? If it's not with a rod of iron, what does he use? These are just some of the questions that are surrounding this mystery that we're looking at right here. And now I want to read to you Mark 4. And in Mark 4, we begin to meet again the parable of the sower, but there is an additional parable that complements the parable of the sower that we want to look at in more depth this morning. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 4. This is the parallel passage to Matthew 13, so you'll see much the same teaching. And it says, And again he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Verse 2 of Mark 4. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, hear this. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and became, because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up increasing and produced some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's something here to think about, something here to listen to. Now, the multitudes weren't exactly into looking beyond the surface, but he was appealing to the people who were serious about what he had to say. So he continues in verse 10. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may not see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Speaking to his disciples and those others that followed him. How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, if you do not know this parable of the sower, if you don't understand it, you won't be able to understand the other parables because it holds the key to understanding the interpreting the other parables. So he proceeds in verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word, that was sown in their hearts, Luke adds, lest they believe him and be saved. Verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground. He's probably pointing over to the various parts where he's standing in front of the people. He's saying, seed sown over here on the stony ground. And these are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. And afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the Lord's sake, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns, pointing over to a thorn patch. 
They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then he points to the good ground and he says, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, some 30 fold, some 60, some 100. The point of the parable of the sower is that throughout this period of time between Messiah's first and second coming, the word of God will be sown for this full period of 2,000 plus years. The word is going to be sown and who sows it? That's not important. This isn't star power here. It's not important who's sowing it. We're all supposed to be sowing it. And as it's sown during this period of time, this parable is teaching us that only some will respond. Those who have a heart will respond, whose heart is prepared. And a comparatively fewer number of those who have the soil of a good and receptive heart will receive the word and so be completely transformed by the word that they receive and so become obedient sons of the kingdom. You see where he's gone with this parable. The question is, they're going out to sow the word. And what's easy to happen is you get discouraged when you're in the ministry. Anyone who does ministry, and many of you are involved in ministry in this church, whether it's Sunday school, Awana, whatever it is, you get discouraged. And what he's saying is we shouldn't get discouraged. Because this is not the time when all people are going to be responding to the king. Only those who willingly want to respond to the king who have been so completely transformed by the word that they become obedient, productive servants of the king. And that group is a smaller group than just believers in general who have received the word, but in some cases provided a soily heart, a heart that was hardened, or a heart that was overgrown with so many cares, the word really couldn't bring anything forth in their life. So the answer to the question is, will there be a kingdom of God on earth during Messiah's absence? Yes, you bet. It will be a kingdom, however, truly found only in the hearts and lives of a few. A few people who have been transformed by the word that has moved into their life. But how will that kingdom grow in the hearts and lives of men and women. With no rod of iron to force submission, how will such believers, even those with a good heart, grow? What's, all, what's this all about? How will they become productive, obedient servants of the king? So our Lord continues. And I want to just walk you through this because this is a very rich portion of Scripture here. Beginning in verse 21 of Mark chapter Four. Listen carefully. And he said to them, to his disciples, and those who were following him around them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? What's he talking about here? He's coming back to something that uh, 
that is a, is, a, is a very characteristic way of putting things in Scripture. In fact, in the Luke passage, in Luke 18, Luke writes this, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand. And then Luke adds, That those who enter may see the light. Now I want you to go back to chapter 4, verse 11. And notice something here. In chapter 4, verse 11. And what you find in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, But when Jesus was alone... He was preaching from a boat to the whole multitudes in this huge crevice or outcrop of rock, which acted as a perfect amphitheater. But now he's alone, and those around him with the twelve, with the twelve, ask him about the parable of the sower that he had just given. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But now watch carefully. But to those who are outside, in other words, He was inside somewhere at this point with his disciples and with a few who had an interest in these things. And he says, but those outside, the multitudes, he said, but to those outside, all things come in parables. Because he was using parables to get the attention of those who were listening who would come to him and say, what do you mean by this? And those who didn't care, they just, it was a nice, cute story. You know, the world uses a parable like the parable of the sower in a lot of different ways today. You can go out and go on your internet and just type in parable of the sower, you'll find a bunch of ways they use it. It's just a cute story that Jesus told. They don't know the meaning. And that's what Jesus is saying to you. It's, it's been given to know the meaning, what it really signifies. And that's the point. And then he goes on and he says next, there's a contrast here between those outside and those inside. To those outside, God's truth is veiled in parables. To those inside, that truth is revealed to them like a lamp, like a light that's put on a lampstand. And it's interesting, he uses the word lamp because in the Psalms it talks about the fact that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. Not a lamp into the feet of the multitude, or a light into the path of the multitude, but it's a light into the path, and a lamp into the feet of the sons of God, the believers who are seeking His truth, and to know Him through the truth. That's an important thing to never never forget. It is a lamp. It's a lamp for us. And the point of verse 21 is, and mark this well, in verse chapter 4 of Mark, is that in, the, in their presence, it will not be veiled in any way. The disciples and those that are coming in and saying, Lord, tell us what this means. It will not be veiled. It will be like a lamp. It will be like a truth put on a lampstand and beamed out before them so they can see. And that's what Jesus has just done in explaining the parable to them. Now, in the presence of those seeking and questioning disciples, Jesus emphasizes this one more time even more strongly with stronger language. Notice verse 22. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that should come to light. But that it should come to light. And then he adds in verse 23, He who had his ears to hear, let him hear. Here's something to think about again, gang. Here's something that's important for us to get a handle on. Do we care enough to ask, what is he talking about? What is the meaning of these harsh words? Verse 23, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those are harsh words. What do you mean by that? 
He continues, verse 24, Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you, and to you who hear, more will be given. Doesn't that, when you first read that, at least for me, I've read that many times, and the first thing that goes by is that, what is he talking about? I don't understand it. This is certainly not good preaching material. This is not a cutesy story. This is stuff that's tough. Lord, what are you talking about here? But it's the very illustration that we're talking about. And this is what he means. Take it word by word. And the key word here is the word measure. A measure is what we use to do what? To measure something that's of worth or value. Whether it's a weight we put on a scale or whether it's a ruler, we're measuring something that's important. It's a value to us. And Jesus is saying, if you measure his words and find them of great worth and value, then God will use the same measure and measure out to us valuable and worthwhile truth from his word to give to those who are seeking and questioning disciples who value his word so much. However, if we do not value it or regard it as worthwhile or just flush it off, so to speak, slough it off, then God will take away even what we have in terms of a clear understanding of his truth. Notice verse 25. For whoever has, to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. You say, is he going to take away my salvation? No. He's not talking about eternal salvation here. That's a gift. But we're his children once we are born into his family. And the question is, it's just like with our children. If they don't show an interest in the things that we deem are important, we're not going to sit there and try to cram it down their throat. We're going to continue to try to throw things out before them to get them interested, but we're not going to, a good parent isn't going to cram them down their throat. And that's what he's saying is. And in fact, he's going beyond that. And he's saying if we don't show an interest in these things, if we don't measure them and find them worthwhile and take the time to think about them, then he's going to take away even what we have. And we're going to become, if you will, dumber and dumber about the Bible, even though we're God's children. We're not going to understand his word. But that's not where he's at. He's speaking to people who really did care. They were disciples, and there were many others around them that were following Jesus and were hanging on every word that he was saying. And when he said something they didn't understand, I want to know what he means. And I'm going to sit here until I figure it out. One of the, <laughs> the French benefits of being a preacher is you don't have a choice. You've got to figure it out because you're facing the hounds on Sunday, and they're going to chase you until you get it figured out. At least some of them will. Some may let it slide, but a lot won't. And that's good. It's good when you chase me around or anybody that's speaking up here and say, what did you mean by that? And we should be able to give you an explanation. We're not here to, to blow smoke. We're not here to tickle your ears. We're here to make God's truth clear. And if it does, it's not clear, then we need to follow up and explain it. That's what he's saying. Why is it so important? to value and regard highly God's Word because it is the truth of God's Word that grows the kingdom in the hearts and lives of people during this period of time that we're talking about, the day in which we live for the last 1,900 plus years. 
It is the truth of God's Word which grows believers into mature, obedient, productive sons of the kingdom. That's why we should value it. It is the truth of God's Word that God's people that points them and prepares them and equips them to obey the King. And to use our Lord's metaphor, it's the Word of God that makes possible the secret of a good harvest. And so I invite you now just to turn with me briefly at these last three verses, four verses. And they're powerful. And that, that we should see this not as a separate parable, perhaps as a complement to the parable of the sower, because it's really explaining the mechanics of the seed in the good soil of the parable of the sower. How does it work? It explains more pointedly how obedient, productive sons of the kingdom are grown when the seed falls on good soil. The focus of the parable is the seed. And the seed, according to verse 14 of Mark 4, is what? The Word of God. The seed of God's Word, when it is sown in good soil, grows obedient, productive servants of the King. And we learn from this parable of the of the seed, three things of how this process takes place. How are people con- transformed into obedient, productive sons of the king during a time when there will be no rod of iron forcing us to obey the king, but we choose to do it. How does it happen that we do that? The seed is at work in three ways. And this is a good outline. First of all, obedient, productive sons of the kingdom are grown mysteriously. Mysteriously. Notice verses 26 and 27. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. He himself does not know how. How do you go from the seed to a sprout to mature growth? A sprout in a spiritual world would represent our life in Christ. We are born again. We're sprout up. We've received the gift of eternal life. We become a sprout. But then we grow. And it indicates not only into a life of simply beginning to understand, but we become obedient, productive, submissive, loyal subjects of the king. How do we get from hearing the word of God to new life in Christ to a mature Christian living in a productive, obedient way as a servant of the king? I can't tell you. I don't know. It's a mystery. That's the point. It's a mystery. Clearly, it requires a receptive heart. That was the point of the parable of the soils. It requires, as Luke says, a good and noble heart. A heart that's ready to hear and to take in the Word of God. Obviously, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. But how the Holy Spirit and the good soil combine and work together with the seed that's in the soil to produce a mature Christian, I don't know how that happens. I just know it when I see the fruit of it. 
thing that troubles me today, we have many seminars on church growth and on personal growth and spiritual growth and all this kind of thing, and we, we try to dissect everything and explain it and analyze it. And the problem is, is that you can't understand it. It's like scientists trying to understand the growth of a plant. They can explain how cells may work and so forth, but no one can really explain how it really grows. And that's the problem with all of our attempts to try to, to break down and, and analyze the, the process of spiritual growth in a Christian life. It just doesn't work. What we know is the Word of God has been taken into our hearts and the Holy Spirit is working with that Word in us and He's changing each one of us. And the process is mysterious and we'll never be able to completely understand it. We know the components, but how they combine together is a mystery. That's the first thing that we need to keep in mind. Secondly, how our Productive, obedient sons of the kingdom produced. The second thing he emphasizes here is in verse 28. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. I'd like for you just to stop with the words, for the earth yields a crop by itself. The word itself is the word Automatos, or automate in Greek. Do you recognize that word? That's a, a root word for what word in our language? Automatic. Automatic. Automatically. Mature, obedient, productive sons of the kingdom are grown automatically. When the word is taken in, the Spirit of God is working with that good soil and that seed that's in the good soil. It's producing growth automatically. In the plant world, it may mean that a farmer waters. He may spread fertilizer. He may loosen the soil. He may pull weeds. He may make conditions better. But the seed brings forth a plant by itself, automatically. That is, without any visible causes. Likewise, in the spiritual world, someone may preach the word. He may explain it. He may exhort. He may comfort. He may instruct. He may invite. He may warn. He may even drill it into the people. But the seed of God's word brings forth eternal life and a mature Christian growth automatically, by itself, automatically, without human or visible causes. And that's so important because we like to think that we're somehow the cause of someone's growth. I remember one particular campus organization that I was working with for a number of years, not Campus Crusade, but another organization, and they were into making disciples. And it was almost like it was predictable. You do this, you get this. And it was sort of the process is that this is something that we do. To make a disciple simply means to make a follower, a learner of Christ. But to transform that disciple into an obedient, productive servant of the King of kings and Lord of lords in a day when he does not have to obey him, but must choose to obey him, 
That's not something that we can make happen. It must be of God. 1 Corinthians 3.6 brings this out. It says, I planted, Paul speaking, Apollos, another preacher, watered, but God made it grow. He made it grow automatically. How, I don't know, but he did it. And the one thing we can do as preachers and as servants of Christ and Sunday school teachers and as family, as mothers and fathers and as people who, who love others and want to see them become all that God wants them to be as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ is give them the Word. Give them the Word. And with the Holy Spirit working in their hearts with the Word, there's the ingredients there to work automatically and make things happen. It sometimes takes time, however, a long time, to communicate the Word of God so that we understand it and receive its truth, but it always takes time to see the results of God's Word once it's been planted in a life. You know, we often think in our culture, at least I'm, I'm so impatient about things, and I want things right now. Lord, I want patience. Give it to me this minute type of an attitude. And it's that way with people. We do what we're supposed to do. We give them the word. We want to see instant results. And God's saying it's a process that takes time. It takes time, and that takes us to the third thing that we need to mention here, and that is mature, productive, obedient sons of the kingdom are grown gradually, gradually. Verse 28, For the earth yields crops by itself, First the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The harvest has come. I don't know if you've ever watched a plant grow. I mean, I've never been able to see distinguishable changes. Usually what I see is stages. If I look at a plant that my wife has got, I see that it's reached certain stages. But I can't see it actually change. But it does over a period of time. It's so slow that we can't even see the process going on. And that's the way it is with God's spiritual work as well. It's a process of growing, mature, obedient Christians that takes time, even in the best soil. And with the Holy Spirit at work in their life, it still happens gradually and perceptively and can only be detected by stages, by stages. But it encourages me that when I do see people reaching a certain stage, I'm confident that God, even though I've just saw, I can just see the stage, I'm confident that God is working, continuing to work, and at some point later I'm going to see another stage. But all the while God was working in their life and things were getting better because they provided good soil for the Word and the Spirit of God was working within them. And they're becoming ever more productive for the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, it says the full grain in the head. That's the end result, the result of the growth process, that, that final place in which a person becomes an obedient, productive son of the kingdom. And the end is not eternal life. It is a life of mature obedience and productive servanthood to the king. Eternal life was at the beginning. Before you can even get on the, the track, you must become a child of God. 
That requires eternal life, believing in Jesus through faith in him. You are given eternal life. But then from that point, we're in a position where we begin to move forward, provided we provide the right soil. This is what it is to value what God values. It's not the farmer. He's not valued in that sense. I mean, obviously, he's important to the process, but not compared to the seed. Anybody. God can use anyone to preach his word or to convey his word to our children or to use, use us in powerful ways to minister his word. It's not us in that role that is critical. God isn't consumed with star power like we are. What God is doing is he wants his word out there regardless of who puts it out there. He wants the word sown. And when it's sown in good soil, it's going to bring forth the kind of harvest that God is pleased to call a harvest. Reminds me of the passage in John 4. Jesus invited the disciples to go with him into the area of Samaria where the woman had gone to tell the men and the women of the city about what she had found, the Messiah. And the disciples had come back, and they were looking forward to just having a meal. And Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him that sent me. And what do you mean, Master? And he said this, Do not you say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. The idea seems to be that God wants to be gathering up productive sons of the kingdom. And it's like gathering hay into a barn because it's so precious you don't want it to get exposed to the water and the elements. And God is gathering his people up as a harvest, if you will. Because it's those sons, those productive sons of the kingdom today that will reign with Christ tomorrow. That's his point. That's the the emphasis that's given here. Obedient subjects of Messiah King during this age are produced by the seed of the Word working mysteriously, automatically, and gradually in a life, a life that provides good and receptive soil. I just close with a brief illustration. Not too long ago, somebody gave me something about the problem of Internet pornography, particularly with men, but with women, too, to some extent, I guess. How do you deal with something like that, particularly as a Christian? Many, you know, there's all kinds of things. I guess you suppose that sites you can go to, there's checks and balances, and all that's fine. I'm not saying that's not got its place. But I know that in the emphasis of God's Word, the issue is one of what we fill our minds with. And if we fill our minds with vulgar, bad images, then that's what's going to be working on us and changing us into the person we don't want to be. But if we fill our minds with the Word of God and we're providing receptive soil for the Word of God, that will replace the desire and the mental images that we have as we struggle with these kind of things in our culture. And no one will ever have complete victory. And I don't want to 
you know, insinuate that today. But on the other hand, I think we can see great progress. Obviously, what we're talking about here is a practical maturity in which we are living our life overwhelmingly for our Lord, serving him with our heart, becoming productive servants of the king. That's where we're headed. And we get there by providing good soil for the word. But somebody needs to be sowing the word, and we need to be taking it in. And as we do, the Spirit of God works and transforms us. That's the biblical model that we have to go back to. And that's what's working to produce the kingdom, the mysterious kingdom, in which people are actually living in submission to the king at a time when he is not ruling with a rod of iron from the throne of David. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. But we can still choose to make him and serve him as our king. Our God and Father, help us as we take to heart these things, these wonderful truths that you've laid out for us. May they impact our life in ways that uh, will truly result in the transforming power of your word through the Holy Spirit at work within us. And again, we give you the